Hello friends, welcome back to Words Are Vibrations. I am your host, James McRae. My guest today is my friend, Ramayan. Ramayan is many things. He is a Web3 visionary who stands at the intersection of deep spiritual wisdom and advanced technology. He's also a musician, a teacher, an entrepreneur, and the founder of the NFT platform and collective Veeam. In this deep and wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the current global disruption and awakening that is taking place and the massive social implications of decentralized Web3 technology like blockchain, crypto, and NFTs. Essentially, Ramayan breaks down how we can save and transform the world. It's a great conversation and you're going to love this episode. Without further ado, here is Ramayan. So Ramayan, I I just want to start off by asking you at this point in your life, at this point in the world, what is bringing you the most excitement? Ah, what is bringing me the most excitement? There's so many things, man, that bring me excitement. Um, I'm excited as I spiritually evolve and grow. And as I see the growth of other people around me in the field, the greatest excitement I get is when I see people grow or expand to the next version of themselves or expand into their greater joy, purpose, and happiness. Uh, I think my greatest excitement comes from that in life. Um, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And there's, there's so much growth and expansion happening in the world right now. Um, you know, contraction leads to expansion. So I think we're all feeling contracted in a lot of ways. And and that kind of initiates this inner expansion that, that, it, it, it facilitates growth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to just start by asking you a little bit about your background because, you know, we know each other, we've spent a little bit of time together, but I don't really know your story and, and really how you came to the path you're on now. So do you want to just start by t- saying a little bit about where you grew up and, and, and what happened in your life to kind of get you started on the path you're on now, both in terms of spirituality and in terms of technology. Mm. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, I grew up all over the world. I was born in Canada, but I've lived and spent a lot of my years in Hong Kong. I grew up in Thailand. Um, so I've had a very international exposure. Mom was born in Hong Kong, father was born in Africa, you know, we're Indian ethnically. So, you know, just by my genetics and my, you know, global, my upbringing, I, got a chance to really see the world. My father was an avid traveler, so we would visit different countries every year. Um, and it gave me a really interesting exposure to the conditions of the world and um, didn't allow me to create a myopic view of the world. It really forced me to see the world more as it is. And we would always go and really make an effort to see the real country behind the country, the world behind the world, you know, not the tourist projection, but what was really happening underneath? Who were the people? What were the cultures? And as I got a chance to travel the world, the more I realized that there's different expressions that we have in culture, different languages, different 
focuses of evolution that different levels of culture are going through. But most people want the same things. Most people have are more common and have more shared than they have differences, really. Um, I really saw that most people want to experience happiness. Most people want to experience safety and security. Most people want to fulfill their material desires because they want to experience a sense of freedom. They want to experience a sense of mastery over their destiny, right? Um, most people are, want their children to do well. It's one of the most common things I've seen in the world is that people want a beautiful world for their children. Right? Um, and it's encouraging to see that. And at the same time, I've seen the flip side where the nature of how power operates and how money operates and how corruption operates and the centralization of power is one of the greatest distortions on this planet. And how these forces of power, uh, when controlled and centralized amongst the hands of a few, create a large degree of suffering for a lot of people. And how out of that suffering, um, worldviews emerge and perspectives emerge and experiences form into um, societal constructs and how, um, you know, how tragic some of that is around the planet in every culture, in every place, and uh, how to align that deepest nature of us as humans who want good, who want to create loving outcomes, and how to balance this kind of lower propensity of human nature to control others and to extract others and to behave only for the interest of self at the expense of others. Where did those reconcile? Where did those find a new home? And if we are going through this collective emergence or this collective awakening, which is really individual awakening in a feedback mechanism with the collective as an organism, at what point does this emergent compassion and understanding, especially amongst the privilege, form into a new construct that enables um, a new type of architecture in society that distributes resources more fairly and that creates positive conditions, uh, creates win-win scenarios. So. You know, in short, I think that's how those two worlds come together for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I love about you is, is as much as you talk about, you know, technology and, and new solutions, your, your, your presence and your teaching is very much rooted in deep wisdom and, you know, spiritual tradition. Were there any um, practices or traditions that you... Uh, that you discovered, um, you know, as a, as a young man or as a child that really helped to inform your perspective. Um, you mentioned that you were, um, you know, Indian and was like, was the, was the, was the Vedas, was that kind of part of the tradition? Was it, were you raised with kind of a, a, a Hindu framework or, or tell me a little bit about how your kind of perspective, um, came to be shaped from that in that sense? Yeah. Thanks for asking, you know, being Indian, of course, there's embedded, there's embedded spirituality very deeply in the culture. And I think the difference with India is that India is one of the oldest cultures that are still intact. Right? Some of these teachings are tens of thousands of years old. The Ramayana is seven and a half thousand years old. So book is the oldest text and so are the Vedas. And um, when you think about it, India is the culture that has produced beings who have spent their entire existence wanting to realize the nature of self. You know, India is the home of the inner astronaut. It's the only culture where millions of people would go into the mountains and 
um, they would go on deep quests of self-knowledge and wanting to bring back that realization and share that as nectar amongst communities. So India is not a place with one book or there's even Hinduism. There's no such thing as Hinduism. That when the British came and they saw the Indus River, they called them Hindus, but there was no Hinduism. It's a Sanatan Dharma. It's the eternal Dharma towards awakening that has thousands of books, that has thousands of living masters, all who have realized the nature of self and who have brought that back to inform the collective. And so, you know, I've gotten a really privileged view of that and spent a lot of my time seeking these different living masters. You know, there's one thing to read a book and there's one thing to be in the presence of one who has fully attained realization. And what I mean by realization is that they have conquered the little self. They have transcended the, the limitations of the habitual mind and are fully lucid. They dream awake. They've transcended their subconscious. They've merged their identity with the whole as non-separate. And to be amongst those beings and to be in the frequency of the teachings of that uh, recontextualizes your life completely. And so I've gotten a chance to be with masters like the wisdom master Matikintin, you know, it's actually her right here. Mm. Books, Heart Sutra. She's one of the few realized masters on the planet. She's got um, Hume, H-U-M-U-H, Clear Mind Buddhism. So she comes from the Buddhist lineage. She gained enlightenment under Padmasambhava in Tibet over 1,200 years ago and has come back and reincarnated to bring that distilled wisdom. And in it is the essence of the Veda. You know, mm -hmm. it is the Veda. Veda means to see. It's where we get the word video from, right? Um, wow, I did not know that. V video and Veda have the same are the same root. Mm -hmm. mm, to see. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, I've heard it described uh, that, you know, places like, well, like the Western civilization has spent all of our energy and time and effort in cultivating a very rich and dynamic outer world, right? We created skyscrapers and technology and build, 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 progress, 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 whereas Eastern cultures devoted their you know in, i think india maybe in particular devoted that same effort and energy into cultivating the inner world and so the the to the same it's not like they don't have an advanced society right but whereas we have devoted that and that energy into creating things externally and it looks complex and it looks really impressive there's that same level of complexity and understanding that they have cultivated in the in the inner world and um, I love that. And it seems like almost now you're, you know, because you're a Western person as well. It seems like maybe your mission is to help bridge those two worlds. Definitely. Because that outer world construction has also been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. The expression of individuality and uh, um, the learning of what it means to be a human in its fullest expression is something the West has really cultivated. And, you know, the ability to become masters of nature is something the West has really cultivated. Now, India learned how to integrate with nature. It learned subtler technologies. That's all. They were, Indians are, you know, India is the home of the technological mastery. I mean, CEOs of most of the tech companies now are Indian, right? Because mm -hmm. Sanskrit is a technology. It's mm -hmm. an incredible programming language. 
the 4,000 grammatical rules, 52 characters, no language drift in 5,000 years. Sanskrit is a perfect programming language. Devanagari, right? mm. the language of the gods. That's the original word of Sanskrit. And so it programmed vocabulary, it programmed reality, its mantras encoded frequencies. It, it had a whole technology of mind. You could use mind to manifest matter like these were inner technologies that were vast and profound. And the West, not being as connected to that, created that outside metaverses and like cell phone technologies. I mean, brilliance in the material world to mimic that fractal as above, so below in this material reality. Um, but in doing so, became so focused on it that it lost its understanding. It lost its own connection. And you lose connection. It is, um, I think it's the source of all human grief. Sure. Essentially suffering. Mm. Uh, but we're reconnecting to that because we're hungry. Or yeah. Connected. Yeah, we need uh we need to recalibrate and just really integrate, you know, what 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 we've lost in the name of progress, which is a lot, you know, and and how can we not go backwards but build upon where we're already going but in a way that is deeply rooted and connected with merging that inner world, you know, wisdom with what we're building in the outer world. So, I really wanted to ask you just like cuz you're I your perspective, you're, you're, you're bringing both, you know, you're a futurist in a lot of ways because you're, you know, you're a web three visionary and you're also have, you're coming from this place of like deep rooted wisdom. Um, I often think of like, what is going on in the world right now? Cause it seems like at some point we, we took a turn and I guess things have been accelerating in, in some ways for hundreds of years. And it seems like in the past just few years, things are accelerating at such a rapid pace. Everyone's going through massive upheaval in their own individual lives. We're seeing society go through massive upheaval um, across all stratas of society. Um, there seems to be some kind of a, a collective collapse and awakening happening simultane simultaneously. Um, how do you how do you see what's happening in the world right now? How do you how do you make sense of it all? Well, there's many dimensions that we can go from. We can look at like the very practical dimension and say that we have a system that demands exponential growth in a finite resource framework. That's going to collapse. That's an inevitability. You just can't have that forever. So mm -hmm. we set up game rules and in game dynamics in a system that are um, that are limited. We're finally reaching a place where Earth's resources as a whole are being subject to that pressure at such a degree that it threatens our very existence. These are, as Daniel Schmachtenberger and some other people call it, metacrises, right? We're in a metacrisis, which means that there's a whole number of catastrophes that are lining up simultaneously that, you know, are, you know, uh, kind of doomed as you do, doomed as you don't situations that need adjustment. And they need... Um, entirely new models and ways of thinking that don't create the same type of externalities that we've seen. And that's a really challenging thing in a global situation. Um, you know, we have the rise of autocracy across the world. I mean, only 20% of the world is actually living in a functioning democracy right now. That's not a lot. You know, we take our freedoms for granted and it's very privileged that we have them. But, 
you know, the state of the world is that even though we have global challenges, um, the real will and the capacity for us to be able to see outside of our boxes and to solve global situations is limited because we're still trying to solve them in the same way. We still have the great same global structure of power dynamics that are essentially ruled by force in the same ways. You still have legacy institutions that are highly susceptible to corruption, but are really the only things that we have to be able to coordinate mass scale global challenges. And so, you know, these are some of the pressures that we face as a, as a society. But solving those is not only a, a, an issue of technology, even though technology helps. You know, as we've seen with so many technologies, it can be used like a double-edged sword. So much of it has to do with an awakening of love, an awakening of compassion in the soul, an awakening of deeper understanding, collective healing, because unless we have the experience of that connection, unless we have the, the fundamental, tangible awakening in our own being, it's very hard to be able to externalize that into technology, into action. So these are, you know, there's many spheres. So that sphere, the spiritual sphere, the larger story of our spiritual existence and the yuga cycles that we're in and the nature of the Kali Yuga and the nature of the larger cosmic dream that we're here playing out and the specific time that we're in, in the Kali Yuga and our lessons here is another framing we can use to see that is more cosmological, which gives us a larger picture into the play of the universe and our place within it, right? Which sometimes can really be liberating. It can help us see because we're not so caught up in this, you know, myopic one lifetime challenge of the moment view. We can be like, wow, we're part of a much grander play of evolution. We've been around for millions of lifetimes. We're here in a grand part of a play with a specific set of learnings we can go through that if we transcend are going to evolve us quantumly as a species. And I like to take that view because it gives that, like you said in the earlier call, a bit more excitement. Like, okay, this is a grand challenge. Can we face this together? What is it going to take for us to rise up into the occasion and collaborate in a way that we've never had before and learn and grow together in a way that we've never done before as a species to create a new set of opportunities to allow us to thrive? Absolutely. And I, I, I really want to talk about the role of, of technology and, and in particular Web3, which I, I find so interesting because I mentioned earlier that it's like contraction leads to expansion and the, the the current global crisis that we're in, I feel like it is triggering a global awakening of consciousness because, you know, the, the level of consciousness that created this problem, the problems that we're facing now cannot be used to solve these problems. We really need to like step up to the next level of the video game in order to create the solutions that are going to be effective in solving our challenges in a sustainable way and it's so interesting to me again how fast things are moving and i feel like there has been a global awakening of consciousness that has been triggered in recent years and then shortly after that suddenly there's this thing called web3 and blockchain and like it 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 almost seems to me from my vantage point that you know, our technology can only grow in proportion to our own consciousness as a civilization. And now we, for whatever reason, we've reached the point in our, in our own collective consciousness evolution, where these, this new thing that we're calling web three um, is starting to reveal itself. And in doing so reveal 
some potential solutions to the challenges we're facing. So I think Web3 is still a bit of a mystery to a lot of people. That term is very common. Not everyone is super literate in that world. Super like simply like how do you describe what web3 is yeah i'm still learning to be honest even though i'm building in it like what that term really kind of contains um and you know someone put it really well where it's like read you know uh web1 was read web2 was read write and web3 is read write own mm. um and it's a sense of like you have ownership again Right. Web two is like you can use all our services, but we really own your shit. Um, and there's a lot of centralized control and power over you. A couple of companies pretty much own enough data on you to manipulate you for the rest of your life. Right now, I mean, Google and Apple and Facebook's data sets. Like, you think you know about yourself? You know nothing about yourself. Wait till you extrapolate that data and look at every single habitual behavior and mindset and psychological. I mean. You look at Cambridge Analytica, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. I don't think we understand the global and societal implications of that at all. I mean, some movies like The Social Dilemma put on by one of my friends, Tristan, did a really good job at describing that. And if you haven't watched it, you really should. Um, so this idea of Web3 is that um, around a couple of ideas. One, you should have ownership again. You know, ownership and have a, some sense of sovereignty over yourself, your field, your information, your data your funds, your currency, and your identity, most of all. Like, why do I need to be doing a Google login? Why don't I just have a decentralized identity that I own that enables me to interact with the sphere of communities and participate with them? Uh, why can't I take my knowledge and content from one place to another with effortlessness? Why do I have to be behind all of these walls? Why is Facebook not actually producing any content? We're all producing its content and it's extracting all of that revenue from us. Like, we're the engines of content for a couple of people sitting at the top of a pyramid and we're agreeing to that while having all of our data mined and harvested. That's kind of a shitty deal. Like these deals we've made suck. Um, and so Web3 is like, wait a second. Actually, no, you can have full over ownership of your own content. You own it. That's NFTs. Or wait a second. You as a community can have complete self-determinism over the nature of how you exchange value with each other. Those are tokens in their highest. I mean, right now, tokens have been used by technologies, but by when tokens are used more by communities, you're going to start to see its utility in a completely different way. Uh, through things like mutual credit. Um, and I would say the rest of the, you know, Web3 is around creating um, autonomous, trusted networks using smart contracts. So rather than needing to trust an individual saying, hey, I hope that you're going to pay me when I do this action or trusting a bank that says, hey, I hope that you're not going to block up my funds in my account and all my money will be gone, which is happening all over the world with banks. Um, I'm going to have a level of sovereignty over that. And these smart contracts are enabling us as a global society to move beyond a lot of centralized control, a lot of weighty legal infrastructure and deploy flexible, dynamic, agreement-based communities where everybody can have a sense of say, of ownership, of participation. It's creating a sense of egalitarianism. Um, and so these are the evolution of cooperatives. These are the beginnings of all how we're learning about how to re-coordinate as communities and societies. Um, and having a fair, equal mechanism where all of us can participate without the need for centralized governance. That's huge. Like those things are quantum leaps in our capacity to self-organize. And if you look at a lot of the issues on our planet as large scale coordination failures, which they are, 
having new decentralized tools of coordination and of asset ownership and of identity are big, big things when it comes back to power. Because if you look at power as money, control, governance, and creativity, i.e. sexuality, all of those things are affected in Web3. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, those are a couple of words yeah. on that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like when I when you when you when you break it down like that, um, and I don't think the the full scope of the impact of 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 you know Web three is it's definitely not known on a on a mass level, and even the people that are in it are still figuring out the um, implications and the potential. And it's it's like it, we we've given this um, paradigm a label before it's even fully been realized or understood yet, um, which is which is great. We're we're figuring it out as we go, which is which is how things really work, especially in the the the, the rapid pace we're moving at today. And yeah, I see so much potential um, in terms of social change based on this de- decentralization. Like this could replace, you know, crypto can replace banks. Um, smart contracts can replace law firms, um, even p- potentially self-governing community. Like the, the idea of the DAO can potentially even replace not only corporations, but political infrastructures based on a, 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 a self-governing community. How would you describe... Um, I'd love to hear your definition of what a DAO is, because this this is even you know suddenly this popped up and now this is you know became a new buzzword and um, it's essentially like a self governing community. But how how just describe what the concept of a DAO represents? So it stands for decentralized autonomous organization. I like to say dharmically aligned organisms in my world, but um, the idea is that it's decentralized. So in a company. You have a couple of locuses of power that make decisions for the collective. You have centralized locuses of power. In a DAO, depending on its voting mechanisms, its government mechanisms, you as a collective get to participate and move through proposals. So um, a smart contract, which means a set of code rules living on a blockchain, which is immutable, which you all decide together, run a series of um, scripts. And those scripts determine how decisions are made, how proposals are passed, and how um, the community is enabled to participate in decisions of releasing of treasury, of how the organism moves and is able to collectively adapt, build, and grow that organism without the need for a single person or controlling interest in it. Um, So that's essentially what a DAO does. It's autonomous in the sense where the smart contract is able to run without somebody pressing a lever and saying, okay, now it runs. It is a self-running mechanism to build an organizational framework that can live across the world and not need uh, a CEO or a boss as of such. Um, mm. And that is its power. And uh, there's still a lot of growth and learning to do in how governance works, how to expedite nature of governments, how to increase participation, what different tooling are needed for different types of DAOs. There's no one DAO fits all. There's a lot of learning, but the fact that you have that as a mechanism is a emergence in our organizational pattern as society. Uh, there's a lot of giving away of power and needing to be able to trust in the collective, which has its benefits and has a lot of drawbacks and challenges. And, you know, we're in a Cambrian explosion moment right now of these experiments. And I believe that these experiments that we're running and feedback and learning is society, is nature 
as we are nature. We're not separate from nature. We are nature. Absolutely. Learning, you know? It seems like one of the big paradigm shifts, if not the biggest paradigm shift that all of this kind of facilitates is the uh, the, the the pivoting from distrust to trust it's like so many of so many of our social structures right now are built on mutual distrust and it's like you know from foreign relations to um financial institutions it's kind of all set up with the with the premise that we can't trust each other and we need all of these kind of things in in place to to protect each other from this and it seems like part of this transition we're moving through is 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 going into you know uh, essentially a love-based paradigm where um you know we we can do things together without having to like be in competition you know with each other in so many ways but so you're the founder of veeam and um i know you're kind of in the process of, of turning veeam into a, a, a dao but uh what is what is veeam what is veeam up to and um what is the mission of the is it a company or how would you even describe what veeam is we're actually moving and we're we're creating a, a new brand right now for the emergent dao that we're building and the uh, real vision of it is to form the home of creator DAOs. so we want to build all the tooling and support for creative communities that's our particular niche because creative communities need a different set of things than maybe a social impact DAO would need or, um, you know, DAOs that run a protocol you know, on the blockchain need very, very different things than creators need, um, you know. So we're building what I was describing before as a creator can not only now launch their project like on a Kickstarter, now all the people who buy in as your community can have some level of say, direction, and control for the project. Mm. Well, they create a shared treasury. So imagine if like a fan club came together and was like, I want to create some amazing avatar, the last airbender fan art. And you, you create a DAO for it and everybody can start using that treasury to be able to create amazing stuff that the community wants that also has value, right? Because creators are the only ones that create value from emptiness. Mm. Right? Reach. Right, aside from creator itself. Like I can sing a song right now and press mint and all of a sudden, boom, hundred thousand dollars have been created in the ether through street streaming revenues. Like that is magical. Creators are the progenitors of value because art and inspiration moves us in our soul. So creators have always been on the cutting edge. Creators have always been the ones to be able to show what's new and what's possible. They've always been the ones that are willing to push the edges and boundaries because they are the force that pushes society forward, that is the role of the artist in its highest, in its dharmic aligned space. Right? So by giving creators these tools to say, hey, listen, you can really now engage your community. You can share your revenues with your community. Um, now that your fans are engaged and your community is engaged and how revenue sharing in your art, they're way more incentivized to promote it and bring it into the world and support it. And your audience actually is comprised of talented individuals that if you unlock their gifts and skills would further that creative endeavor way more than if they were just watchers or subscribers. So now you're creating the future companies as communities, thriving communities who are passionate, unlocking their gifts and skills with the shared incentive model. Yeah. So that's a bit of what we're building at Veeam and all the tools for creator ownership and creator licensing and how to bring revenue back into those DAOs for creative initiatives through all the different websites on the internet um, and how to launch creative projects that are aligned with impact. Um, yeah. That's what we're doing here. 
Yeah, it's amazing because um, our artists have really gotten the short end of the stick in so many ways because of the way the system is built up to with all these layers of uh, middle middlemen and all of these kind of legal systems that just essentially siphon the value out of the creation. And it's 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 a, it's essentially legal theft. <laughs> like it's like just the way these systems are built, the way the industries are set up. And, and and because it's the only game in town or, you know, it has been for so long in this centralized world that artists had no choice but to play a game that was set up against them. Um, so we're starting to see that change with, you know, just artists, you know, demanding more, whether it's more royalties or um, reclaiming the ownership of their material. But um, I just want to, like, go through that a little bit more um with like an example, just like to wrap my head around how an artist community, like uh, via Veeam, like might work. So, for example, let's say that I am putting out an album. Let's say I'm, I'm a musician. I've got a band, and we're, we're working on this amazing album that we're super excited to release. What is like a new paradigm release model that Veeam could help kind of facilitate in order to ensure that I'm getting? you know, ownership of my work that I'm getting audience involved. Like what, what, what might that look like for an, an album, for example? Sure. I mean, an album's a cool example. So if you're a, um, a band and you're putting out an album, you know, you can do a Kickstarter, right? Um, but here with something like Veeam, you'd be able to create a project out of releasing your album and you'd be able to fund it where all of the people participating in it would get an NFT. And that essentially is an access key. It's being like, I have an access key into this community. And, you know, the project gets funded. A part of that goes into the community treasury and part of that goes into a creator treasury. Right. This creator treasury now goes and builds that album. Right. Um, and on Veeam, ideally, what we're building in the future is a full HR portal. So we're going to build an entire place where creators and contributors to creators, co-creators. So creators need a lot. They need writers. They need graphic designers. They need recording artists. They need part Instagram managers. They need social media managers. They need booking agents. They need event creators. I mean, being a creator is not a singular task. You need a village to create something. And we don't acknowledge this. As a creator myself, who's released multiple albums, the hardest part is all of that work, the admin work, the how much work it takes to bring something into the world for real is a lot. And all of that business burden falls upon a creator. So yeah, you can launch an album, fund it and do it all yourself, or you can build a community of participants. And when people want to participate, they can write what their gifts and skills are and you enter them into the community. Now these people have a ownership stake in your album. They have an ownership stake in the community. And some of that treasury can go right back to them for doing jobs to actually help you grow. And now you have a diverse group of people who are passionate, incentivized, financially aligned, and who love you, who love your art. And so it is creating a village around the creator. And as that grows, as hundreds of these grow, the shared HR portal grows and you start getting vetted talent. As talent gets more vetted across a number of communities, you're starting to provide livelihood and jobs for thousands of not only creators, but the entire networks that support around them. Now, because you have these support networks of your community, you have distributors. It's always a thousand fans are better than a million, right? Like a thousand strong fans who are incentivized to share your stuff and really promote it can do way more for you than a million people who just press a share button. 
And because we haven't created incentive alignment, because we've only seen them as buyers or subscribers, because we've only had an extractive mentality to community, we have not yet unlocked that power. So we're using the DAO infrastructure amongst a new licensing infrastructure and a bunch of other things to combine them to create a communal network for creators. Mm, so powerful. Yeah, it's, 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 it's leveraging art to create value, not only for the creator, but for the entire community. And everyone's, you know, participating because they want, they want, they want to be there, not because they're, you know, paid to be there. I mean, they are, but it's, they're, they're only being paid to be there because they are invested in it already. So it's just, um, everyone wins. Yeah. I, I, that reminds me a lot. Yeah. I have, I have a friend who has a, a retreat center in Costa Rica and he has uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, investor money and investors involved. And he's in the process of buying out the investors, um, the traditional kind of investing model by releasing a, 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 a publicly available NFT um, launch where there's different tiers of NFTs, which are going to allow you different access to the retreat center. And you're basically, you're going to be an owner of the retreat center uh, on different tiers based on the NFT you choose to buy. And that allows you, you know, a certain amount of nights per year at the, at the center. And it's, it's really kind of crowdfunding the ownership um, and creating a community around the tr retreat center, which is, you know, that's similar to, to, to you, what you can do with art as well. So it, it applies to, to real estate. It applies to art. There are so many different, you know, opportunities that this is going to enable. Um, what do you think? I, I often wonder, like, as we transition from, you know, let's just say the old world, the old paradigm to a new one, what is the role of some of, because like, there's so much power in some of our current institutions and like, like like a McDonald's, for example, like, do we want to, I feel like, like, we, we have all these systems in place that are, are not working for us. They're not beneficial for humanity, but there's a, but there's a power in their, in their scale and in their, in their existing kind of like infrastructure. So like mm -hmm. when you look at like companies like, 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 you know, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, these kind of like, you know, essentially web two platforms that are built on, you know, taking our data and selling it. Do you think that companies like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, do you see these companies like becoming less and less relevant or do you see them like being, does this, does, do they, do they have a change of heart? Like, do they, do they evolve along with this paradigm or, you know, how do you see that kind of playing out? Yeah, Bucky, Bucky Fuller said as well, you don't try to take down the old system, just make new ones that make the old ones obsolete. Right. And when a new system comes out, the old one becomes obsolete really fast. Mm. When Uber came out within a few years, the entire taxi industry was threatened. Yeah, Airbnb came out. The entire hotel industry was threatened within years. Didn't take long. We're not talking decades. We're not talking centuries. We're talking like a couple of years. So when something is fundamentally better on all levels, all levels, right now it's not better on a user experience level. Web3 is not. Web3 user experience sucks. And because of that, and because that is so important, it's not winning. I don't care how great it is, how much money you make, how much NFTs you buy, how much whatever. If as a user, you don't get it, it doesn't matter. You're just not going to use it. So the scales are going to tip. 
yes. with user experience. Like I actually have a whole meme about how the revolution is a UI UX design challenge, right? Yes, like, totally. Like a whole thing around that. And I firmly believe that, which is why in our company, I am so heavily focused on user experience design. Yes. Seamless user experience design and, you know, creating feedback mechanisms that make people feel like they've won and, and are participating. So when it achieves that level, along with everything I'm telling you right now, which is just an obvious benefit to the end user where they're, you know, monetizing and connecting and feeling more part of community, those systems are going to either have to catch up or face obsolescence. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's similar to, uh, you know, just like the NFT thing, like people want to own art, right. And when you can display a piece of art in your home or even wear something cool that you invested in, you know, you can, you can kind of show it off. You, you can kind of like display it. And even like the NFT is like, people might, even if they get the idea of, Oh, I, 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 I get it. I own digital art. Like that makes sense to me, but without the proper way to uh, display it in a way that is user-friendly and, you know, just like believable. Um, it's hard to get that adoption or like excitement around it because people want to be able to see it and show it off. And we need the, I guess like kind of like the hardware of, of it and the, and the, and the UX UI of the, of the platforms just to make it intuitive. So people don't have to, because it's like, it seems like the infrastructure is there, but the, the the interface for mass adoption is the next layer that's really going to drive the revolution. Exactly. And, you know, like even NFTs, like NFTs are like websites. In 1993, what you saw as a website is very different than what you see as a website. Sure. In 2012, and it's very different sure. as a website now. So we, we kind of say NFTs like they're a thing, but they're actually like a container. Um, and as a container, their evolution is going to shock people. Um, in terms of what you're able to own and what you're able to do with an owned object, right? It's, it's all, it comes back to ownership. The only thing that an NFT is about is I own something. You can put a link to a JPEG in it if you want. You can put a deed to a house, right? And as long as you can provide providence of ownership and ascribe legal ownership and decentralized identity parameters along with an NFT, and then you can fractionalize that inside of communities to actually have real assets that are shared, now we're starting to talk about a whole different utility than a JPEG, right? And so that's the part we're interested in as creators is unlocking that potential for creators and giving them the true power of that to truly create a true commons because mm -hmm. that's what NFTs can do with the things I just described above. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to just touch on capitalism with you because I, I, I think that's such a polarizing... That's such a polarizing debate right now. Like I, if I, whenever I post anything about capitalism, people get heated one way or the other. Like a lot of people think it is capitalism is the sole cause of all the world's problems. And some people seem to think that it is the only solution to the world's problems. And, um, you know, there are different kinds of capitalism and different ways of, of implementing it. But I'm just like, I've heard, I've heard you talk about capitalism a little bit. And when we look at like the, a, a shift into a new paradigm, like do you, what elements, I guess, what do you like about capitalism? What don't you like about it? And like, what, what do you, what do you think we should retain and what should we kind of get rid of to kind of purify our, our, our economic system? Sure. So, you know, capitalism, I think, was a healthy response to feudalism, right? Giving people the means of production and the means of generating their own abundance and wealth. Um, 
was an evolution. We entered an industrial era. We entered a place where the quality of life for billions of people increased a lot. Now, the rules and checks and balances we put on it were based on the level of consciousness at the time it was created, you know, and the right. level of understanding about the world and reality. I mean, we had slavery when capitalism was created for a long time, right? Like, so we're like, great, we can use slaves and extract more capital. Like, we have to remember that these things came from that framework. So there was some level of enlightened consciousness that produced it, and there was some level of uh, very backwards thinking consciousness that produced it. So we created an exponential model, right? that you know profit at all costs to shareholders um as our mantra that was the mantra of capitalism and a lot of different externalities have occurred from that some really positive some really negative um there's no doubt that we can say that it's increased the quality of life of billions across the world but it's also decreased the quality of the life of a lot of them because of the nature of the externalities of capitalism so I don't think capitalism is going anywhere. I don't think you're going to, I think capitalism has become the de facto, even China, they call themselves communist, but Deng Xiaoping, white cat, black cat, we're going to be capitalistic communists, right? Like that was the thing that got China where they are. Centralized control and power in the guise of communism and capitalism to be able to run the economic engine, right? Um, now, capitalism has a lot of shadows, monopolistic tendencies, insane competition that centralizes power. Um, um, you know, uh, oh, there's so many problems actually with capitalism, the destruction of nature and the rapacious destruction of nature, um, because mm -hmm. capitalism is an engine that has no limits or boundaries. Mm -hmm. So I think what needs to happen with capitalism is you need to create limits and boundaries. Mm. The only force that's going to augment capitalism is governance. Mm. That's it. The only thing you got is governance. So the thing I'm most bullish about right now is um, rights of nature as an example so corporations became corporations because they were given legal rights of personhood right they were given the rights of a person which means they could sue if they were damaged they could go to court as a person and a corporation can sue a person a person can sue a corporation as a person and it has personhood right now because of limited liability laws the person behind the person can actually be shielded and protected those are issues right now the problem is nature itself is not a person. Nature can't take you to court. Nature can't defend itself. Nature can't speak for itself. So because of that, you can take as much as you want from nature and skirt around the very you know pithy policies that governments has in place, right? And government can choose to take you to court around these things, but nature itself can't. Mm. Certain countries are recognizing this, like Chile, is enshrining in their law, nature will be able to have personhood. And a river in Ontario just gave uh, the river personhood and just, and got First Nations leaders and nonprofit organizations from the river to be the representatives of that river, which means that if you dump the river, the river can sue you in court with its representatives, right? So <laughs> wow. the externality that you would have, which is like I can extract from nature at no cost because I won't get taken to court. If you implement rights of nature, it, the most powerful check and balance to the corporate rapacious nature of nature um, because you're going to have to price in those externalities. You're going to have to price them in and treat nature completely different because your profit line is affected by that and your ability to be litigated by nature is uh, affecting you. So this is how to augment capitalism, right? Uh, in an expedient way across the planet, if done right with the right campaign, 
that could create some sort of checks and balances to the beast. Oh my God, that's beautiful. I've never heard that before. Rights, mm -hmm. rights of nature. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah, I mean, if we, the, the I love the precedent that's been set for already. If a, if a corporation can be treated as a person, which is ridiculous. I mean, you know, giving that same authority to nature seems like the best next step. Um, amazing. I love that. Um, so I wanted to just touch on how technology tends to be perceived in the spiritual community, because I, I've had some pushback whenever I, you know, I, I recently like was invited to give a, a talk at Meta here in Austin. I have, um, I did a small partnership with a, a VR app and whenever I kind of dabble in, you know, technology from kind of a, my own kind of brand perspective, I always get pushed back on the spiritual community who seems to think that technology and spirituality are at odds with each other. Have you noticed that dichotomy? And, and, and if so, what do you, what do you, what do you say to those people? I say it's a very simplistic view. If you don't see technology as an externalized consciousness, then you're seeing it wrong. This was in someone's mind before it became a cup. This phone was in somebody's mind before it became a phone, which was in the essence in the ether that you pulled and translated into being. Water is technology. Air is technology. A tree is technology, right? So everything essentially is technology, whether it's human-made. And if you uh, believe in the power of what it means to be human, you should celebrate the fact that we are brilliant enough to be able to externalize our consciousness, especially collaboratively in such a way, to create some fantastic things for the world. The guitars, the piano, the technology. I mean, these are incredible technologies. So it's simplistic to be against technology. I think where this spirit, quote unquote, spiritual community has an issue is when technology are used to exploit people, right? When technology is used as a negative factor to be able to, to erode the fabric of society, when technology becomes so hyper-addictive that it detracts from our capacity to be in the present moment and to connect with who we are and is siphoning our attention, which is our divinity. Your attention is your divinity, the end, right? Like where your attention flows is where your energy goes, where your attention flows is where your mind operates. And if your attention is being harvested, that is debatably, you want to use these words, like asuric or demonic in that sense, right? Um, so that's what I think these communities have an issue with. And so I think that is the fundamental challenge is how to steward that with integrity. Um, mm -hmm. so Absolutely. Yeah. Everything's, everything is, everything is a reflection of our own consciousness as well. And we can use tools for, you know, you can use fire for, for, for good or evil, for example. And like um, technology is the same way. It's, it's about the consciousness that we put into it, but I want to, um, I want to end with this question. So, I love the idea of planting seeds in the collective consciousness, like um, that can take root and grow. And I think that's the role of the role of art is to kind of, you know, plant visions into the imagination. Mm -hmm. And you know, things are moving so quickly. Like again, two years ago, no one knew what an NFT was, and now it's a household word, right? Things are accelerating very quickly, and the world is being really remade and evolving right before our eyes. 
So I want to give you a chance just to imagine the world in 20 years, you know, on the, on the, on the other side of, of, of this transition and just take a minute just to paint a picture of how you envision the other side of this transition in 20 years. Um, it can be as utopian as you like, but what what's what's what what is what is um a, a, a positive outcome um best case scenario of how the, the 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 social and environmental and political impact that these technological changes can have on the world um in in in, a, in, a, in 20 years time describe the world that you see in your imagination mm. I feel like you're going to have a rising crescendo, meaning you're going to have this rise on one level of the grasps of power, of control, you know, like these entities that are, you know, in the same game theory of acceleration of power, war-based power, you know, ex acceleration of accumulation. There's a world that that exists, and that's a powerful world. And it is, you know, still, you know, engaged, highly engaged. But I, I think there's going to be a pop. There's going to be a pop of that bubble based on the nature of the global debt bubble that exists. On this side, I see that there's a group of beings that are preparing. We're in. We're in. Not in the shadows, but we're in. We're in the light. But we're we're not out there yet. We're not necessarily preaching it all yet. We're builders. We're evolving our consciousness. There's millions if not tens of millions of people that are going into ceremonies into ayahuasca ceremonies into healing into transformative work into meditations and ashrams and temples and doing the deep inner work required to know who they are and to stand clear in self and to become fearless and to recognize the existential challenges that the world face and have a deep commitment to be dharma warriors and to be clear vessels to be stewards of a new way of a new consciousness of a new technology of a new world and as this is moving forth this is also rising like a tide and as this is rising like a tide it's creating a vortex of technologies of possibilities of potentials in the field and as these beings start to come together and coalesce, there will be a moment where there will be mass suffering. There'll be a moment where the fundamental ideas that we've held true have, have been ruptured. And it'll be a moment that necessitates the unification. It'll necessitate through the very you know, polarity and strength of its challenge. These beings who have been doing all of this work for so long to come together and explode and implode and create a a movement it'll have to be a global movement it'll have to be a global movement rooted in dharma it'll have to be a movement where we can stand unanimous around things that are true it'll have to be a movement that will be using the coordination powers collective ownership powers structural matrices that have been built over the last 10 15 years to give rise to a new possibility for how the collective can come together and that doesn't mean this is going to go away but it does mean that there's going to be a new power that's rising and it's going to come from a self-sovereign set of individuals who have realized that they can create mass impact by building tools that will serve the collective. Um, and I feel like 20 years from now, you're going to see hundreds of millions, if not billions of people participate in these new technology platforms that help them sense make, that allow DAOs to operate their local communities and their local towns that allow for greater networks of food sharing, and that we start to build more decentralized networks of um, sovereignty 
and resource distribution that allow for a bulwark of protection against the systemic collapse. And, you know, in 20 years, we're still going to be in a formulation stage of creating pivot points towards what the society should be like for our children's children. But we've reached a climax point in 20 years where critical mass is beginning to is beginning to create the tidal wave. Beautiful, brother. I hold that vision with you. Um, how can people learn more if, if people want to either, you know, do you have any recommendations for kind of um, entry points into learning about Web3, NFTs, or even getting involved in Veeam as a creator? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we're doing beta applications for our creator communities right now. So you can go to Veeam.com, uh, soon to be creation.space. And um, we're really holding the space for uh, creators who want to create with their communities who want to launch projects in the world, but want their communities to be engaged and involved in everything that you heard. So we're doing beta applications right now. And we've got some incredible creative communities that are already lined up. And if you feel the alignment, everything I've shared, I want to be part of them, please come and do so. Uh, be honored to have you. And, you know, in terms of resources, I mean, there's so much um, in so many different places that you can read about things. I really like the green pill. Um, Kevin Orosky, I think his name is. His last name, um, and he's created a really beautiful podcast uh, about DAOs and systemic change and the impact thesis of DAOs and how we can use them to solve societal issues. He recently just did a podcast with Daniel Spachtenberger as well, which I found really valuable. So mm -hmm. I would say take a look at that. And remember that like all technologies are an externalization of consciousness so that you know, there's going to be those in the Web3 space who are just seeking to scam and seeking to extract value from vulnerable people. And there'll be a lot of those. And there are going to be those who see the power and potential to rewrite and change how our civilization operates. So pay attention, be aware, you know, don't let a couple of bad apples ruin the entire plot, you know, and um, really search for those who are creating things of value for the collective. Wonderful. You're, uh, you guys are doing great work. Um, I support the cause. Thank you for being the the leader and the teacher and the and the innovator that you are. Um, thanks for talking to me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, man, it's been great to be on with you.